Thank you. Good morning. I'm really excited to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. For those of us who have been with us since the start of the year, you know that we've been going along on a year-long series on the theme of Believe, Belong and Behave. This morning, we're on the last sermon on our sub-series on the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, as we start, I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be dipping in and out, trying to refer to some of the verses inside. And before we start, maybe I can pray for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of reading and learning from your Word. Lord God, we thank you that your, your Word is so full of instruction, but yet it is so full of encouragement and life. We pray this morning as we dig into your Word that they will not just be words on a page, but we will see them for what they are, words from your heart to us. May your Holy Spirit write your Word on our hearts this morning that we may see more of the beauty of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Asing is a godly man. If you've never met Asing before, what would be your first impression of him? Would he be wise? Maybe he has a very good knowledge of the Bible. Or maybe he behaves a certain way. What, what is godliness? What does it mean for a person to be godly? I ask this question because the theme of godliness is at the very heart of Paul's first letter to Timothy. The words godly or godliness appear eight times in the book, which is the most number of times that, this, that these set of words appear in any book of the Bible. In 1 Timothy, the, word, the theme of godliness is, is strongly linked with the other big theme that we've heard in the past few weeks, past few weeks, which is that of false teachers. I want us to hold on to that, to that thought. What is godliness? What does it mean to be godly? And we'll be coming back to it in the course of this morning. So before we dive into the final sermon, let's have a quick recap about what's happening in the church at Ephesus. This is the church where that Timothy is based at as Paul is writing to him. Thank you. False teachers have infiltrated the church in Ephesus. Paul had spoken about the threat of false teachers while he was previously with the church at Ephesus. He made reference to fierce wolves who will draw people away from the church. This is something you read in Acts chapter 20. And now as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, what he warned about has happened. The false teachers the wolves are wreaking havoc in the church and they are drawing people away. Paul has written this letter to Timothy to advise him, to encourage him to stand up to false teachers. In typical Paul style, Paul hasn't tried to sugarcoat, he hasn't tried to play down his description of false teachers. You can look at me at the verses, he says that they are insincere liars, confidently talking about things they don't understand, devoting themselves to teachings of demons and silly myths that amount to blasphemy, while they're drawing people away from the church. 
So that's the big problem with false teachers. In addition to warning about false teachers, in these past few weeks, we've learned that Paul has also been covering several sub-issues to teach the church how to behave, how to behave as the household of God. Issues like gender roles, qualifications for leaders, and looking after the vulnerable. In this final chapter, Paul is teaching us three things about false teachers. You see this in your handouts. Three things about false teachers. How to identify false teachers, the cause of false teachers, and the solution to false teachers. First up, how to identify false teachers. Paul teaches us to identify false teachers in two ways. Through what the teachers teach and how the teachers behave. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 3. False teachers will teach a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. You see, false teachers will teach things that contradict, that are different from the gospel and scripture. Anyone who's grown up in the GBC youth ministry under Pastor Ollie will know that one of the things that he liked to say was, check me out against the gospel. Check me out against scripture. In the context of, if you're not sure about what I'm saying, check me out against God's word. And this is exactly what Paul is calling us to do. If we're not sure about what is being taught, we need to check it out against scripture. Let me give you a an example of how not to do this. In army, you call this a negative demonstration. Before Jess and I got married, we went to different churches. And both of us can remember the first time I went for a church service at her church. I spent the whole service with my arms folded and with this really black look on my face. And then I spent the whole time after the service telling her about everything that I felt went wrong with the service. From the song choices, to the sermon, to the atmosphere, to the preaching, to the lighting, the lack of lighting. Samuel Bay had a strong opinion about pretty much every part of the service. And as, as I reflect this to you, I'm ashamed to say that it's actually a strong opinion about every part of the service that I wasn't used to. I wish I could say that immediately I repented, but the truth is I spent months, years on this moral high horse until God in His providence used my mother to hantam me. Uh, hantam means, in this context, to sternly rebuke. And, and this verse like my mother, is a stern hantam to what I was doing. Because all my complaints were not based on God's Word, but rather they were just based on what I was used to and what I thought was right. I didn't bother to see what the Bible said. I just assumed that as long as it was something that I wasn't used to, it couldn't be right. Don't try this at home. So the first way to identify false teachers is based on what they teach. The second way is based on how false teachers behave. Look with me at your Bibles at verse 4. False teachers are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. 
Okay, in other words, they are very proud and very active, constantly looking for an excuse to argue just so that they can show everyone that they're smarter than everyone else. And, and do you see what it produces? Look, look back at your Bibles in the second half of verse 4. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Let me try and unpack that list. It's actually a progression, getting from bad to worse. People were competing and disagreeing with one another to prove that they were right, verbally attacking one another, saying things that were false and abusive, and they were doing this until there was no more gentleness, no more trust, no more love. Things that are fundamental to the unity of a church. You see, what we should note here is Paul is saying that the church shouldn't just listen to what teachers are saying, but the church should look at what, how teachers are saying it and how teachers are behaving. So to try and drive this point home, I'd like to introduce to you the FTT, not the final theory test, but the false teacher test. This is how it works. Step one, someone says something. They say something about doctrine or the church or about something or someone at church. Could be over a meal, over a Bible study, during CG, on social media. Doesn't matter what the context is. They've said something about doctrine or about the church. Step two, assess content. Is what the person saying based on scripture and consistent with the gospel? Or is it based on opinion or tradition? Some key phrases you can look out for include, that's how we've always done things, or that's just the right way to do it. Phrases that I recognized from when I was busy pontificating about Jess's church all those years ago. Step three, assess behavior. Is the person seeking to build up the church or the person and glorify Christ? Or is the person seeking to break down the church and the person and glorify him or herself? Again, some things for you to look out for. Tone, the use of abusive or slanderous language. Is the person trying to get you to take sides? And is the person willing to talk directly to the relevant parties or does he or she just want to vent about it? Three simple steps for us to identify false teachers. Which brings us to the next point, the cause. So what is driving the false teachers? Why are they doing what they're doing? Paul diagnoses the root cause at the end of verse 5 for us. Look at me at your Bibles. The false, it says the false teachers are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And this is a really key verse in the passage. We don't know exactly how, but the false teachers were clearly getting a lot of money by appearing godly, by behaving in a Christian way, and spending a lot of time debating, arguing about Christian doctrine and Christian things. The false teachers knew how to appear godly, but, but at the same, but Paul still says they didn't understand godliness. Why, why does he say that? They, they know how to appear godly, but he says they still don't understand it. The answer is in, is in ch chapter 3, verse 16, which commentators say is, forms the very heart of what 1 Timothy is about. I've got it on the slide for us. 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We started this morning asking what does it mean to be godly? What does godliness mean? Did you see the answer in 3.16? The mystery of godliness at its very heart is about a he who appeared on in who appeared on earth in the flesh, was shown to be righteous by the Spirit and is now sitting in glory. Don't you see it? The mystery of godliness is actually the gospel. And and this is where false teachers got it wrong. And and may, may I say this is where lots of us, me included, often get it wrong. You see, we, the false teachers knew what godliness looked like so they could appear godly. Godliness is living a life consistent with Christian beliefs. But Paul says they didn't understand godliness because they missed the point completely on the why and how of godliness. You see, godliness is living a life consistent with Christian beliefs. That's what it is, but it's a response to the gospel, in response to the finished work of Christ, in response to the security we have in Him, in our identity in Him, in response to the riches we have in Christ, both now and into eternity. On, on earth, we who have put our faith in Him already have a down payment, a deposit of these riches and, and we are told that we will enjoy the full riches of Christ when we see Him face to face. That's what we are singing when we sing about the higher throne that this world has, has never known. That's what we are looking forward to and this is what Paul is saying that we look forward to. These are the riches of Christ. You see, throughout the Bible, the call to obey, the call to be godly always only comes after a reminder of this gain that we have, that God's people have after our faith in Christ. This is where the false teachers missed it completely. They imagined that godliness itself was a means of gain because they didn't understand the riches of godliness that Christ offers. They thought godliness was a means to something, but godliness itself is rich. What are these riches that that godliness offers? Paul fleshes out the riches of godliness we have in Christ throughout the rest of chapter 6. Look look back at your Bibles with me if you would. We're going to be jumping around a bit, so uh, bear with me. In verse 6, he tells us, like like we read just now, that godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, he's saying that godliness itself is great gain. Therefore, you can be content with whatever you have on this earth, because you already have this great gain. Skip down with me a few verses to the second half of verse 12, and he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And skip down again to verse 19. He says, To take hold of that which is truly life. In, it is in Christ that we live the life that we were created to live. And lastly, we have this wonderful doxology in verses 15 and 16, where Paul paints such a glorious picture of God that all of us Christians have to look forward to. Let's try and unpack it, how he describes God. I'll read it out for us first, verses 15 and 16. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You see, amidst 
the different gods and kings of this world, God is the only true God and King. He is immortal. He is the only one who lives forever. He is so brilliant and so wonderful that He dwells in light that no one can go near. And yet, for no other reason other than sheer love and grace, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the highest of the high, sent His Son to dwell among us, dying the death on the cross that was reserved for the lowest of the low, so that we, the undeserving, may be called His treasured possession, and that we may live forever in His light. You see, for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, God is no longer in unapproachable light. Instead, as, as Pastor Ian prayed during the pastoral prayer, we boldly approach Him, looking forward to the day when we shall see Him face to face on the higher throne, when He will dwell among us and there'll be no more death or mourning or sickness or crying or pain. You see, the riches of godliness is the gain we already have. It's the gain we already have in Christ, which we experience imperfectly now, but we are promised we will experience perfectly in the end. This is what the false teachers didn't see. Instead, they were driven by a love of money and tried to appear godly as a means of getting money. It's like, but now that we know what the riches of godliness really is, it's like they had this priceless diamond in their possession, but yet they were keeping the box and throwing away the diamond. And while the false teachers didn't realize it, this love of money was destroying them from the inside out. Look at the three cause and effects that Paul lists for us in verses 9 to 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And it says, he says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And again, he says, through this craving, referring to love of money, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, I'll summarize this for us. The love of money hardens our hearts and warps our souls till we're trapped in a cycle of death, evil, and destruction without even realizing it. That's how people wander away from the faith. They don't realize that they're wandering. You see, the love of money often works in deceptive ways, slowly getting us to compromise our stance at home and at work or at school, slowly hardening our heart till we don't realize anything. And it, and it usually starts with small compromises that, that probably seem very harmless from the start, perhaps starting with longer hours at the office, turning a blind eye to something unethical that's happening at work, going to places we're not comfortable with, taking a break from church or CG or just general community just to take a rest, maybe allowing ourselves to daydream about that, that lifestyle that we always wanted to live, or letting anxiety about the future get the better of us. And, and these compromises are themselves often driven by, by desires that aren't, good, that aren't bad. They're often, they actually often good. 
things like the desire to do well in our job, to be responsible about providing for our families, to want a better life, to be a team player at work. But what the Bible says is that no matter how it starts, no matter how it starts, good intentions or not, the moment we let money take the place of God in our lives, to provide what only God can provide, that's when we're hooked. That's when we fall into temptation. That's when we fall into the snare. And we're on the path to ruin and destruction without even realizing it. See, this is what was happening to the false teachers in Ephesus. They may, they may even have started out with the best of intentions. We don't know that, but they may have. But now the love of money was driving them to destroy the church. They were doing ministry and engaging in discussions about doctrine because they saw it as a means of feeding their love for money. And, and this morning, the application to us is Paul's tim- warning to Timothy and to the church is a warning to us today as well, a warning against imagining godliness as a means of gain. You see, we, like the false teachers, can be serving in church, perhaps even engaging in discussions about church and Christian doctrine, but we, may, we too can be doing it for the wrong reasons, doing these things in a way that destroy the church. It may not be money that is driving us, but there are many other things we may want to appear godly in order to gain. Many other idols that are good things that become ultimate things that that we want to use godliness to feed. To try and press this on, let me give two examples from my own life of ways that I have, at one point or other, imagined godliness as a means of gain and how it impacted my conduct in church. The first, the first was imagining that godliness was a means to gain control. Imagining that godliness was a means to gain control. See, I was reading and listening to a bunch of books and talks and sermons about the importance of expository preaching. The importance of expository preaching. And the truth is, I agreed with them. I felt that sermons should be done in an expository way. What happened though is that in my need for control, every service that I went to, every sermon that I listened to, all I was doing is that Samuel Bay was listening out for whether the sermon was expository or not. I didn't care about, I had no ears for what God was using the pastor to talk to me about. All I wanted to think about was, is this this pastor preaching it the right way? I even tried to justify this behavior to myself by telling myself that I was just trying to help the church do things God's way. But, but what I was really doing in my, in my need for control is that I was trying to get the church to do things, not God's way, but my way. I was trying to appear godly, i.e. trying to give feedback about the church. That sounds very godly. But it was really a means for me to, to feed my own need for control. Okay, that was the first example. Second example. The second was imagining godliness as a means of gain, to gain the satisfaction of being right and for others to know it. Now, my family will tell you that I can be slightly argumentative. Some of my past Sunday school teachers will attest to that as well. If, if kept unchecked, I would always want to win the argument. 
to have the final say. And I can't tell you the number of times this translated into having a, into heated debates with people about doctrine, about the way church is run, even in topics I didn't know much about but still wanted to be right. And I tried to justify to myself that these were important topics and this heated discussion was really just iron sharpening iron. But really, behind all this Christian words and jargon, it was just me wanting to win the argument. See, I was trying to appear godly, i.e. having passionate debates about doctrine as a means of gaining the satisfaction of being right. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have opinions or discussions about doctrine or the church. But what I am saying is that if we see godliness or appearing godly as a means of gain, if we imagine godliness as a means of gain, the devil will end up using these good things to sow seeds of envy and disagreements that can easily, easily lead to abuse, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. So what's the solution to false teachers? Paul gives us four things. Four things to do. Flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. Okay, actually there are more, there's more than four things. I'm going to focus on four things this morning. Flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. Let's start with the first two. Flee and pursue. Look with me at, at verse 11 in your Bibles. Flee these things, meaning idols, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You see, why is Paul telling us to do this? It's because it's so, so easy to forget the riches we have in Christ. Our hearts are easily deceived, questioning God's goodness. And even after we have come to know the riches of Christ, the riches of godliness, our hearts are still prone to running after the created things instead of the creator. Our hearts are still prone to running after idols. So verse 11 tells us that we are to run from idols, the idols that so often take up the throne in our hearts, and instead we are to pursue, to strive to become more and more like Christ Himself. That's what a list of things are. It's not supposed to be exhaustive, but it's supposed to tell us that these are the, you're supposed to pursue the qualities that God in His Word tells us we are supposed to pursue. It's not enough to run away from idols. We should run towards godliness. It's not it's never enough to run away from something. You always need to know what you're running towards. So it's like this. So it's like if I say, don't think of Ian doing ballet. Most of us will immediately think of Ian doing ballet. Now, the solution instead is, let's say I said, think of Eugene doing, let's say, surfing, that would be much more effective. Okay, no passes were hurt in the making of these photos, and I'm not saying that one image is better than the other, but the point is this, it's not enough to run away from something. You can't just say, don't think of this. You need to replace it. You can't just take off, you need to put on. And Paul tells us to run towards a life that God calls us to live. What does this look like? Applying this may sometimes mean 
physically running away, like an alcoholic staying far, far away from a bar and actively doing something else. But many other times, the fleeing and pursuing is emotional or spiritual. For example, when I feel my need to feed my idol of control, instead of entertaining the thought, what I need to do is run away from that and actively remind myself to run towards the thought that God is sovereign and that He should be in control of my life. To run away from my need from control and run towards a God who says He's in control and therefore I can trust Him. And, and Paul tells us the quest for godliness isn't easy. It's a daily, actually it's a moment-by-moment battle, which is why Paul describes living this godly life as a fight, a fight that needs strength and perseverance. Paul urges us to flee and pursue him. You look again at verse 11, uh, and, and in verse 12, he calls us to fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which we have been called. To fight and to take hold. You see, to persevere in a fight, a fight that is tough and long, we need to know what or who we are fighting for, what or who we are holding on to. There's this scene in the Two Towers of the Lord of the Rings where the main character, Frodo, is overwhelmed by his mission to destroy the ring as he feels that the ring is instead destroying him. Distraught at himself, Frodo tells his companion, Sam, that he can't go on. And this is how Sam replies. I'm going to read it for us. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something even when you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Frodo asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? To which Sam replies that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. See, Paul is telling us what Sam is telling Frodo. He's telling us to hold on to Christ. In this lifelong fight, Christ is worth fighting for because He's the one who saw us as worth dying for. Do we see Christ as worth dying for? That's the question this morning. Do we see the riches of godliness in Christ? I have days when I struggle to motivate myself to live a godly life and, and struggle to find joy in Christ. And I struggle to see godliness as gain because I have lost sight of the riches I have in Christ. I struggle to find joy in Christ because I have stopped seeing Him as enjoyable. May I encourage us this morning, if you've ever been like me, struggling to see the reason to live for Christ, not to begin by looking at what God calls us to do. Don't, don't begin with what we are told to do because that's a response. No, Begin by looking at God Himself. Godliness starts with God. How can you do this? Read His Word, 
talk to Him, talk to your friends about Him, ask Him to open your eyes that you may see Him for who He really is in His glorious colours. Don't just look or listen, come and taste and see that He is good. And what, what, what God tells us is once we have seen the beauty of Christ, once we have tasted His sweetness, experienced the riches of His love, the abundance of His grace, we will need nothing else to motivate us to live a godly life. I'd like to end this morning with this. Even as God calls us to flee idols, pursue godliness, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of eternal life, there will be some of us here that are already thinking that this is too difficult. I've failed so many times, I don't even want to try anymore. Godliness sounds good, but actually it isn't for me. I can't possibly be godly. You don't know the things that I've done. Dear friend, if this is you, let me tell you that God knows everything that you've done and everything you are going to do. And let me tell you, the place that you are in, actually, you're not too far from the truth. You see, our hope should never be in how well we flee, pursue, fight and take hold. Because you're right, we can never do it perfectly enough. None of us is righteous. No, not one of us. But that doesn't mean we don't have any reason to hope. Because God calls all of us not to hope in ourselves, our imperfect selves, but to hope in Christ. You see, the Gospel tells us that how the immortal Christ, living, dwelling in unapproachable light, gave up His immortality and approached us to dwell, to live among us. You see, we learn that in, the, in His life, in Christ's life, He perfectly fled sin, He perfectly pursued a life of righteousness. And on the cross, this good fight we are called to fight, He has won it already. And this eternal life that we are called to hold on to, we really only can do that because Christ on the cross grabbed eternal life for all of us on our behalf. See, on the cross, Christ paid the penalty of sin, the penalty we deserve for failing to be godly. And He did that so that all of us who put our faith in Christ can boast of a godliness that is already ours. In Christ, by faith, we have a godliness that is already ours. When we are pursuing godliness, know this, we are pursuing a life that is already ours in Christ, that He has promised is our identity and that He promises power beyond imagination for us to pursue. You see, what, what we are learning in this passage is, you are already godly, now pursue godliness. So when we're struggling to live godly lives, perhaps due to some weakness or thorn in our flesh, when we're struggling to hold on to eternal life, to hold on to Christ in the midst of this difficult fight, know this, it's not how well we hold on to Christ, my friends. It's about how well 
Christ holds on to us, and because of what He did on the cross, He promises us He will never let us go. That is the true riches of godliness. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do not deserve your riches. Yet you lavish these riches upon us. Lord God, we do not deserve to dwell in your unapproachable light. And yet, you sent Christ to dwell among us so that we may live in your light. Lord God, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters, those who are trying to fight the good fight, for those who are fighting well, I, I, we thank you for, for this and we pray that they will continue to put their hope in you, the author and perfecter of their faith. But for those of us who are really struggling to be godly, I pray that they will not hope in themselves, but they'll hope in you. Give them joy unspeakable, security that can come only from you because they are already godly in Christ. Lord, I pray for us as we sing this closing song that we would sing about how we come to you with empty hands. I pray that we will, we will sing all the more loudly from our hearts about how even as we cling to you, you are our hope and peace is in that you are clinging to us, are holding on to us. We thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us rise for the song of response.
Father God, we confess sometimes we have become like those false teachers in Ephesus because we have been led to believe that there is gain through godliness. So help us to be reminded today that the gospel is enough, that there is great gain with the gospel and contentment. For you, O oh God, are indeed the blessed and only sovereign. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You dwell in unapproachable light. And, and yet you draw us. You invite us near. Father, help us to rest in your embrace. Help us to be reminded in the challenges and difficulties of this week that Christ clings tenaciously. That we are saved not by our performance, but by his on the cross of Calvary. And so may the God of endurance and encouragement grant all of you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen. You can be seated. After a moment of silent meditation, we will be dismissed. I do hope before you leave, you will have an opportunity to meet our missionaries who are here today, Mac and Narola, I don't see you right now, but I know they are here. Oh, there they are. Just wave and let people see you. This is my kind of missionary because this past week they were celebrating God's goodness through baptism, and one of our members inadvertently posted a picture of this baptism with a no swimming sign, <laughs> but didn't say no baptizing. So bless you, brother and sister. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.